Hey, everybody, we are here to tell you about a cool new feature on the website that we would love for you to check out. Head to howtosplitatoaster.com and check out the bottom of the page. You'll find a box floating there that says, quote, ask Seth and Pete, close quote. This box is magical. You just type a question in there and the robots behind the scenes will search the actual audio of our entire library of past episodes and not only give you a short answer to your question, but point you to the specific episodes where we discussed your topic so you can listen yourself. At this point, we're just testing it. To know if this feature should be a permanent feature on the website, we need your help. For that, we need you to ask a lot of questions. So head to howtosplitatoaster.com and click the box, Ask Seth and Pete. The robots will do the rest. On with the show. Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today... It's time for your toaster to get vulnerable. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about failure. Specifically, we're diving into the often overlooked topic, healing after divorce, trauma for men. From redefining love to overcoming adversity into finding purpose. We are exploring the recovery experience in a way that fosters understanding, empathy, and growth. Furkan Dandia is a therapist, speaker, and coach. He is also the author of Pursuit of Self-Love, 30 Uplifting Messages and Reflections. He is here today to share his story from engineer to therapist and over the hill of divorce. Furkan, welcome to the toaster. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, Furkan, so you you were an engineer, and you are now a therapist, and we're going to talk all about your approach to uh, divorce trauma. I just want to know, was it your divorce that instigated your career change, or was there something else in your journey that drove you away from engineering? A bit of both. I mean, uh, I'm still an engineer. Unfortunately, you can't give that up. Uh, and I'm still working as an engineer, uh, believe it or not. But uh I would say when my son was born 10 years ago, I really started questioning my purpose in life, but I just didn't know where I wanted to go with it. So I tried different things. And then five years later, uh, I separated from my ex-wife and was going through a divorce. And I really, at that time, relied on therapy to get me through. And then as I was going through therapy, I realized how much shame I was carrying as a man just going through divorce and, and talking to other men, recognizing there's so much shame amongst men, not only with divorce, but other things. And for some reason, I felt this calling to become an advocate for men's mental health and started pursuing this degree in, in psychology, which um, uh, so I started doing some undergrad courses. I really enjoyed it. And then during COVID, I applied for a master's and I'm just in the final stages of finishing that up. I am working as a student right now in a clinical setting. I have clients, but then December I'll be finished and then I can start working full-time as a therapist. Well, it's awesome because there's not a lot of male voices in the divorce space. There's an amazing amount of information out there generally on divorce and a lot on women helping women. So it's nice to have a brother in the room, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's that's what what I really want to get to here because I, you know, when we talk about divorce trauma, right, the post divorce experience, 
you know, I'm sometimes surprised at the gendered conversations that we have around these things and sometimes not. And in this case, I'm wondering, you know, what we have to learn about post-divorce trauma and how it manifests uniquely for men. Is this all about just questions of ego and masculinity and testosterone? What do we have to learn? Well, I think it goes beyond that. I mean, there's that huge financial aspect just through experience and talking to other men. A lot of men don't seek out divorce because they're worried about the financial aspect of it. So then, you know, they stick in those marriages. And and, uh, I mean, Seth and I've talked about this on my podcast, but a lot of the times you just go along with it and then your kids grow up and they move out and then maybe you're ready for a divorce. So there's that piece and then there's a piece that I alluded to earlier around shame. And for me, it was a bit more pronounced because of my cultural background. And I can't speak to other cultures, but my parents immigrated from Pakistan. So there's this whole East Indian religious tradition uh, in the family. And I felt that pressure from my parents when I told them, hey, I don't think this is working. I'm not happy. I want to go ahead with this. And even though my dad understood, my mom was very hard on me. and and for rightful reasons, she just didn't want me to break the family and then having my son growing up in a broken home. So, so there was that additional pressure that I felt and, and shame that came with it. So those are some other things that I've, I've experienced myself, but also noticed in other men that we don't necessarily talk about, at least from what I've seen. I want to jump on a a phrase that you used, and I think we need to talk about it because it's this idea of what it is to have a broken family and a broken home. That jumped out at me right away. I'm wondering, Seth, what your what your angle is on this as a divorce attorney who, by that definition, breaks homes every day. Yeah, I don't break them. I just like make sure they never get built, rebuilt. Right? No, it's. I think it's just such a bad term, and and it's very historically accurate. That's what a lot of our parents' generation and the generation before them would say, where I really believe that children can live in two separate houses and still have one home. And what I mean by that is if the parents are doing a very good job of understanding what family is, that the children still have two parents, that the parents aren't in conflict. Yes, you have dad's house and mom's house, right? That's just a way of identifying a location. It has nothing to do with the home. But I think that's a common, common phrase that I hear less and less over time. It's more like, I can't imagine I'm not going to see my kids every day. So I think it's an old timey phrase, if I can use that type of terminology. And and that's what I, I hear, like, for Khan, when you're talking about shame, a broken home is a term of shame, right? That's part of the cultural baggage we're trying to shake. Correct. And I think there's another element here, like, for me growing up in a Western culture, which is more individual-based versus my parents coming from a collectivistic background, that was also a bit of a disconnect, right? There, where, you know, the individual is a family unit. Whereas for me, where I'm looking at it is like, well, I'm not happy. I don't feel fulfilled. I'm not being the best version of myself. That did not land for them, right? Because they're like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean that like you're not fulfilled, right? 
you have a good job. You have a nice wife. You have a, a, a child. Like, what else is there, yeah. you idiot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I had, I dropped ego and masculinity uh, earlier. I wonder if you can comment a little bit on that. Because when we're talking about the uniquely, possibly uniquely sort of male experience of, of experiencing trauma post-divorce, at what point are we striving to just get out of our own way? Well, that's uh, that's a battle I, I fight every day, and it's become more and more aware to me as I've grown through this experience. There was definitely a lot of ego, and I realized that the ego is always there. And you know, people have different views on this that you should kill your ego and do this and that. But I think the ego's job is to be an ally if you can look at it that way. And for me, um, as Seth touched on, just just a few moments ago, I had a good job. I had a wife. I had a kid. We had a beautiful home. So naturally, that led for me to have this sense of pride and arrogance. And then going through that experience, it just shot out at me that how much of my humility I had lost and how I needed to regain that through that process. So I looked at it as an opportunity to become more humble and not let my ego run me, but rather let my ego point out when I need to bring it in check. As far as masculinity goes. Hold on, before you before you get to that, is there anything that physically happened to you when you thought your ego was getting out of check? You know, did you like bulk up somehow or get tense or get short with people? Is there anything that might trigger yourself to be like wait a minute this is now happening yeah i think there was a there was a sense of entitlement that came with it too and and i think that was more i, I think for me that was more from a spiritual perspective too where i had the sense of entitlement that hey i'm a i believe in a god so good things should happen to me and so when all these experiences were happening i wasn't getting short but i think it was being really hard on life in general, where I was just questioning things and, and doubting this higher power that I'd always believed in my entire life. So there was a lot of realizations through it. There was also a, a moment where I was kind of almost going through depressive symptoms where I was starting to get down on life and I was starting to see I had some dark days, but then something, I don't know whether I, I mean, I do consider myself fortunate, but something clicked in my head that this is an opportunity for me to come out of this and take all the lessons I can and do something about it, do something positive with this, whether it's improving myself, but at the same time, also helping other people that may be struggling in similar ways. And, and then that's where the whole being an advocate for mental health came through as well. I I want to drop this. This might surprise Seth that I know some things about some things. Um, so uh, just hang on. I I know I will say that you know everything about movies, and I know nothing. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I, I'll tell you where the, where this came from. I've been I've been doing a lot of research on on the the states of optimism, like what it means to like reframe your mind in and around, um, you know, an optimistic mindset, right? And, and free yourself from limiting beliefs. And and I, I was reading up on Martin Seligman's thoroughly uh, theory of learned helplessness, and in particular explanatory style theory. And just for people who haven't, you know, heard about it, I love these three sort of spectra. Personalization, when bad things happen, do we blame ourselves or do we blame external forces? Permanence, do we see the situation as unchangeable or changeable, something that we can, we have uh, agency over? And pervasiveness, do we see it as affecting all aspects of our life or just one specific area of our life, like this experience? And I, I read this and I could not help but, uh, but apply it as a layer over the divorce experience. And I'm curious how you, as, as somebody now, you know, as a student and therapist, how you relate this to your experience going through divorce. Do you have thoughts on this? Is this something you can, you can jam with a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I think there, like I said, when I was going through those depressive symptoms, there was, I would say, again, I'm fortunate, but there were times when I had that victim mindset that why is this happening to me? Right? Like, why is the law not seeing my side of it? Why do I not get to see my son and all of it, all of it. I mean, it, it was a pretty nasty process. And that's all personalization, external outside forces just raining down on you. Correct. Correct. And what I noticed was, and as you turned uh, kind of alluded to it, Pete, the days where I was in the victim mindset, nothing was going right. Uh, everything would piss me off. It was like, and uh, you know, as Seth asked me, being short with people, getting pissed off in traffic, getting pissed off at work. And I've been the type that I've always pushed through things. So I was able to fall back on that. But then as I had this dance with the victim mindset, I started realizing that, okay, I can choose to be a victim and let things happen to me, or I can get my agency back and look at this opportunity happening for me. So, yeah, I mean, I can relate to a lot of those things that you touched on based on that theory. Well, and and this is the thing I think that's really important. If if you're going through a divorce, because I, I imagine the experience is this is my fault. It's something I'll never be able to shake. Or even if it's her fault, this is something that is happening to me and it's permanent. And because of this, I'll never find myself in a new healthy relationship again. This is something that is that I'll just exist in as the divorce guy. And now I don't want to be the divorce guy, but I don't have any choice. But what you described is an experience of being able to recognize, hey, wait a minute. I I can push through this. And I wonder what strategies we can employ to help recognize when we're in that space, because when we're compromised is historically not the best time to recognize we need help. Well, Pete, that's a that's a great question. This is actually something that we work on here at the firm to help clients get through this, because they usually feel that this is affecting globally all aspects of their life. Reasonable thing to feel. I might have to sell my home. I don't know. I have to go get a job now or, you know, I have to cut back on finances. I might not see my kids. It feels very 
all-inclusive and global on everything that we deem important to us. One of the things I try to work with clients on is get to the specifics and say, this isn't impacting everything in your life. And if it is, some of it is positive. So one thing I will say to them is, is there a restaurant that you like to go to that your spouse didn't? You can go anytime now. And that's a very specific example, right? The other thing that I say, which is an inappropriate joke, and they all laugh at it, is when they're going through the whole thing, this is horrible, this is terrible, none of this is good, I look at them and I say, you never have to have sex with her again. And they're like, that is a positive. That's the the one. That's the anchor. I needed that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... It's really how you look at it. You you now have a choice of how you spend your weekends where maybe you didn't have that before. But that gets into the kind of the global versus the very specific. But I think also so many people find that outside forces. Naturally, when they talk to a divorce attorney, they actually talk about the wrong person. The guy will come in and bitch about his wife. And I'm like, I don't represent her. (laughs) I need to know about you, your goals. How can we make this situation changeable? What are we going to do in that whole analogy we're working from here? Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add a little bit around the permanence piece because that is crucial too, right? Like as we're talking about, because it's so easy to get stuck in the the frame of mind that, oh, this is like, this is going to kill me or my life is over. And how am I going to get out of this? For me, it was just as tough as things would get on certain days. It was just reminding myself that this is not my forever. This is going to end one day. I don't know when, but I just need to power through. And I know that for some people, I'm like, well, that's kind of like wishy-washy and you're kind of deluding yourself, but it really works because I I would convince myself that, yes, it is going to end. And it's true. It did end. I did make it through. Uh, But it's hard to see that light at the end of the tunnel when when you're stuck in it. Well, part of permanence understanding is nothing lasts forever. And sometimes when you're on a big high and everything's great, I like to be more even keeled. So sometimes I'll say, I'm not always going to feel this good. Mm -hmm. And right when you say that, it brings it down a notch. But when you're feeling bad and you're like, I'm not always going to feel this bad about this, it raises you a notch. Just articulating that what you're going through isn't going to be permanent helps you kind of stay in that even keel and you're not tacking back and forth all the time and having highs and lows. Absolutely. Yes. I don't journal it, Pete, but I say it. I just love hearing it. And I'm going to make that play on a loop as I go to sleep every night. Just Seth Nelson <laughs> talking me to sleep. I, I want to talk about uh, when you think about your work as a as a male sort of uh, advocate, you know, you're anchoring on on vulnerability. Let's talk a little bit about vulnerability and why that's important to moving through process like this. 100%. So what I've learned, because I've started facilitating men's groups and the power of vulnerability, what I've learned is starts with one. And a lot of these circles I sit in or or groups I sit in, I'll try to put something really vulnerable on the table and I can just feel the pressure, just release from that room. Other people will then just 
feel really comfortable. They're like, okay, this guy has just opened up this huge box. Now there's not much I can say that is going to be worse or, or whatever, however they look at their situation. But yeah, vulnerability starts with just one. And then for me, it also helped just being open with my friends and talking through these things, because at the end of the day, if I kept it all inside, I was just going to kill myself. So being open and and sharing it. And I think for me, telling myself that I want to be an advocate for men, put, put that additional responsibility on myself where it was like, okay, I have to walk the talk. So if I'm going into this field, I need to be able to back it up through my actions. And that required me to open up and, and be vulnerable. And I felt like the more I started being open about the process and some of the things I was going through, it made it also, it made it a lot easier for me to deal with because then it wasn't like some disastrous thing that was happening at the background. It was like very real, but very similar to what I said earlier, that permanence aspect was gone because I was like, okay, this is going to end. I'm going through this obviously but i'm not the first person nor am i going to be the last person going through this and i'm thankful for that yes yeah <laughs> need clients <laughs> T- took you a second on that one pete always selling seth always selling <laughs> <laughs> i was quiet when he said i wasn't the first one to go through <laughs> yeah right right i guess i'll give you some credit <laughs> But but uh, back up a little bit. So uh, vulnerability starts with one. What is it? Can you describe what the like for those who are listening are like, I, I don't know. I don't want to join a men's group. That's uh, uh, for some reason, whether it's fear or again, ego or whatever. What does it look like to go through the process of of exploring vulnerability if that's new to you? I can only speak to the men's groups that I've been a part of. And the one I co-facilitate here locally in Calgary with a friend of mine, we've had a lot of new men come through and a lot of them, you could tell they're nervous, but either they've been told they need to attend something like this, or they were told by a friend, Hey, this is really working well for me. You should come check it out. So when they're coming in the first time, a lot of the guys look like, you know, deer and, and headlights. And they'll observe the first couple of sessions. They'll just sit there. They won't share anything. Uh, We have, we go around the table, we kind of do a check-in and they'll keep it very brief. And then you could tell as soon as we get into the raw, deep, vulnerable stuff, they're just like, oh my God, like, I can't believe these guys are talking about this stuff. And then as they attend one or two more sessions, they start getting comfortable because they sense the safety there. They sense that it's not judgmental and we're all just there supporting each other and recognizing that all of our issues are fairly common. And through that dialogue and conversation, we're learning from each other. So then they start opening up, but yeah, it's not easy. The first time it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't easy for me going for therapy. But for Khan, when you're in that situation, you're talking about you and your experiences. I can see some people thinking, well, are they just bitching about their wives or is it more, Hey, this is what's going on in the court system. This is how I'm dealing with it. This is what was happy in my life, but this is how I'm deciding to deal with it. So it's more introspective than just, I can't do anything about this. I would say it's on a spectrum. What I remind myself when I'm doing therapeutic work, you have to meet your clients where they are. 
it's the same thing. Uh, a lot of the guys coming in are in that state where they're giving up their agency or they're blaming the system or they're blaming their partner or their employer, whatever it is, they're externalizing the problem as we talked about earlier. And then there's guys who are introspecting or reflecting and they're doing it out loud. They haven't had the opportunity to do it in isolation. So they're doing it in front of everyone else. It varies, but for us, at least again, in the groups I've been a part of, we're meeting everyone where they are. There's no judgment. If the person feels like bitching about their ex, sure. But as some of the experienced guys, our responsibility is also to ask introspective questions, to ask questions where they reflect and re recognize what's their responsibility, what's their role in it, what can they do? Not all groups are the same, so I can't speak for all of them, but that's the idea. And I think safety for us is very crucial. And a lot of the groups I've heard about, the safety aspect is crucial. So that's why it's important to make sure you're giving a safe space to everyone, no matter where they are in terms of their thinking and their mindset. All right. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Seth, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. It's just tragic. Pete, we hear this statistic all the time. At the end of the day, the courts don't care about the statistic. The courts care about keeping kids safe. And when I mean safe, I mean safe from a party who truly suffers from an alcohol disorder or is being wrongly accused of having alcoholism or some other alcohol disorder. It's easy and it saves you money. Instead of he said, she said, there's Soberlink. Soberlink is fantastic and they are a fantastic partner to this show. So what is Soberlink? Soberlink is a device. It's like a breathalyzer, but it is more. You blow into Soberlink whenever you want to prove in real time that you are safe to be with your kids at carpool, at drop off, at handoff, whenever you're going to be driving, you blow into Soberlink. It uses facial recognition to prove that you were the one blowing at the time that you are taking the reading. It sends it off to the people who need to know people involved directly in your case not to be used for publication not to be used for social media this just goes to the people who matter most for your case as you are collecting data soberlink remote alcohol monitoring has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind during parenting time and seth word on the street is courts love it yeah and it's not just when you're getting in a car let's be clear people can say never gotten a dui What's the issue? Well, the issue is once you're home at five o'clock and you're no longer driving, but you're going to start cooking and having a glass of wine and that glass of wine turns into two bottles. That's now an issue. So it's not just getting in the car. It's when you, the children are in your care, custody and control, are you focused on them and not using alcohol? Independent third party, real time verification to support your case. I haven't been drinking Here's the proof. Those are the words that lawyers and courts love, but here are the words you're going to love. You can save 50 bucks off your device and get started right away at Soberlink.com slash toaster. That's Soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you to Soberlink for sponsoring this show. Can you talk a little bit about your 
your journey outside of therapy, uh, and I'm I'm speaking, I think, specifically about a, your sort of vulnerability or mindfulness practice to keep your head on straight when you don't have the group. That's taken me a while to build together, and it's still evolving. I think for me, the way I hold myself accountable and outside of the group is giving myself enough time and solitude. That's been one of the biggest learnings I've taken through this whole experience because I never really took that time to reflect and meditate for that matter, or, or like you said, being mindful. So I start every morning where I take two hours of just focusing on mindfulness. So it's breathing exercises, it's taking, uh, it's doing cold exposure, it's prayer, it's journaling, and then I'm ready to go out into the world. But the reason why I do that, because I learned previously that I would be just carrying all this stress from the days prior and not taking the time to work through it. And that mindfulness time that I spend now, I'm able to regulate myself and really focus on my breathing and have this internal state where I'm just calm and more aware of whether I'm carrying tension in my body. And if I am, where is it coming from? Just reflecting and constantly in that sense of contemplation. Um, the prayer really helps me to remind myself of being humble and keeping that ego in check. Um, I, I, I speak about it openly. When I pray, I'm asking for humility, for uh, patience, and for strength. And that gets me through the day as well. So those are things that I've really embedded. Two hours you do this? Yeah. I do not know how to find two hours of my day. If I do, Pete would make me podcast an hour of it, okay? Yeah, you'd be podcasting an hour of it. No, there's no lie. Like, that's amazing. Like, I get up early, and I'm very thankful that I get up early, and right when I get out of bed, I literally take the dogs for a walk for about 20 to 30 minutes. And in that time, I'm very peaceful. I walk along the water. We're very fortunate to live where we do. I don't want to tell you, Seth, you're, that's your mindfulness practice. Yeah. You can be mindful and meditative no matter what. You don't have to be on a Zafu and like in lotus position. I appreciate that. But that's like a 30 minute, 20, 30 minute walk. This guy's talking two hours. <laughs> you just need 90 more minutes. Like, I'm walking across the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. How many times to do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So... Like, do you get up at three? Do you get up at four? Is it five to seven? I, I get up at five and, and like, I'm fortunate. I live like uh, less than a 10 minute walk from work. So it, I save on the commute, obviously. But yeah, those two hours I found, and, and like I said, it's evolved over time. Initially, it was half an hour. And then I kept adding things that I felt were really serving me. But that, those two hours are really an investment into my entire day. And with the cold exposure, what I found is because I'm able to shock my system and regulate myself immediately and breathe through it, when I encounter the daily stressors that we all do, I'm able to just come back into myself and breathe through it. Now, obviously, there are certain outliers where, yeah, I need more time to work through it when, when those stresses come up. But for the most Can part... Can we talk about this cold therapy first? Yeah. <laughs> you have to understand, Furkan, Seth's in Tampa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Going from Calgary to Tampa is a very different perspective. In one of our attorneys, Paul Phipps, who's been on the show, 
he does cold therapy and he says, oh my God, I don't feel the arthritis anymore. And I can like, he does all this stuff and I hate being cold, but people keep talking about these cold plunges that they do. Yeah. And it sounds absolutely miserable. So talk me through it because obviously this is a blind spot for me. Yeah. And, and people are doing it and I've gotten into cold water because I was training for a triathlon. It was open water. I had my wetsuit on and literally I got in and I couldn't breathe. And I'm like, in the pool, I can swim a mile and a half, two miles, no problem. I'm not going to swim 10 yards in this freaking cold water. And you're, how long are you in it for? What does it do when you first did it? How was it? Like, talk us through this a little bit. Sure, sure. So when I first started, I did a plunge and I lasted 30 seconds. And then I slowly worked myself up. So I first heard of Wim Hof, I'd say three or four years ago, a couple years ago, I read his book. So I started slowly experimenting. And then um, I've been able to expand on that too. So the first year I was doing cold plunges once a week at my local gym, they've got a cold tub there. So I was doing anywhere between five to 10 minutes. And then last year I started boxing and my trainer told me about doing cold showers. So I listened to the Huberman lab podcast, which is great. And he talks about, you know, if you really want to get a good handle on your mental health and stress doing five days a week of cold showers and once a week of plunges. So that's what I do now. So every morning I'll take a cold shower for three minutes. And with the cold shower, where I found is my tolerance has improved significantly. So now when I do plunges, um, in the summer, I was going to the local rivers and, and jumping in after I finished my hikes. Uh, I've got way more tolerance. So my plunges last anywhere between seven to 10 minutes. Now it is hard like yourself. Uh, I, I didn't not enjoy the cold whatsoever, but with time I've been able to build that tolerance and, it's really helped me manage my breathing because that's all you can focus on when you're exposed to the water or wh- however you expose yourself to cold. And like I said, it's helped me regulate myself. And anytime I'm stressed, I just go back into that breathing mechanism that I, I'm employing when I'm exposed to cold. Okay, this is this is it right here. And I'm I'm right with you. And I, I think the Huberman Labs and, and his bestie, Peter Atia. Uh, are are fantastic resources on this. Yeah, I'm pretty new to cold plunge myself, but I think you get to something that we were talking about earlier, which is if you are building up your physical tolerance to finding to being able to find your calm uh, through these extreme uh, exposures, then you find yourself when you are emotionally compromised in a heated moment, like going to court and having to listen to your former spouse in a trial situation, you're able to find peace there easier. It's it, uh, what you're doing. It's, it seems like is armoring yourself for later conflict that you may not even see coming Correct. by finding this sort of practice. I, I really love that frame. And that kind of brings some other stuff in together that we were talking about before, because if you're doing that, then you're not going to feel like the situation you're in is unchangeable. You're not going to feel like it's going to affect every aspect of your life. You're not going to feel like it's just external sources or forces raining down on you. It's just a way to manage every single thing we've been talking about yeah. to say, look, I can handle this. Now, the cold plunges sound to me like, look, you get up, you eat a frog. That's the worst thing that's going to happen all day. So you get up, you do your cold plunge, you're going to be better for the rest of the day. 
just my take. I can be wrong. If that's the way you got to look at it, Seth, whatever it's gonna, we're going to do to get you into that 40-degree tub. <laughs> it's true, though. It's the voluntary exposure, right? There's something about yes. it. It's You're doing it to yourself. Actually, I, I read a couple of years ago, the Stoics did that, too, like the Roman emperors back in you know 2,000 plus years ago. So this isn't something new that a Wim Hof or Andrew. Yeah, but when you say that, I think, haven't we evolved since then? <laughs> they did. They did some other crazy <laughs> shit too. the <laughs> That's Romans. That's not really a selling point for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, I think for Khan, that's really it. And what this, this whole thing buttons down for me into a, you know, what is it going to be to refine and reclaim agency in your own emotional health? And that's what this does. And I love the way you put it. You're doing, you're doing it to yourself, man. You're getting in that tub of your own power and authority. And I think that is, uh, I think that's really great. I think that's great. Man, I had no idea we'd go this route on this conversation. Furkan, you're the best. Thanks for doing this with us. No problem. Thank you. What, what do you want to tell people? You got the book, you got the podcast, share some, share some plugs. The podcast really started with having these vulnerable conversations. I, I was talking to buddies when I was going through the divorce. And I was like, hey, there's a lot of material here that other people can listen to and perhaps at least not feel alone in their adversity or struggle, but even learn something. So that's how the podcast started. And it's evolved from there where not only am I talking about mental health, adversity, but even some of the societal issues we're seeing. And, and Seth came on and we talked about divorce and how people can be mindful around that and some of the strategies they can employ with respect to co-parenting as well. So that's the podcast. It's called Easy Conversations. And the book was a result of me. So I, I started the therapy and then I jumped into another relationship and I hadn't really healed myself. So when I came out of this other second failed relationship, as I call it, I started to look inward and i was like okay well this is two in a row common denominator is me so i need to do something here and i went into what i call the modern solitude and started reflecting on myself i started reading i started learning more about myself and really doing a lot of healing work and a lot of the reflections i had i put into this book with the hopes of helping other people reflect on their lives. And it's, it's a bit of a, a coffee table book that allows people to journal as well. So my hope was to provide these prompts to people that they can use in their journaling practice. And yeah, that's, uh, I do offer coaching as well as the therapy work that I will be able to offer on a full-time basis in January. I'm fairly active on social media, primarily on Instagram at, you know, Zen, but that's about it. Yeah. We'll have all links uh, in the show notes. Bouncing into another relationship unhealed from the first. I think the Romans even called that a rebound relationship. <laughs> 2,000 years old. <laughs> Amazing. Have we learned nothing? Okay, so so I like the fact we haven't evolved that much. <laughs> <laughs> for Dandia, thank you so much for hanging out with us uh, at this point. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to turn our attention to the listener question. Seth, our listener question today comes from uh, the anonymously titled Father. It's a great question, though. Here we go. I have a 14-year-old son who is on the spectrum and gets violent sometimes. He lives with his mom, and I don't see him very often due to alienation. 
He wants to reconnect and visit with me, but I don't feel safe around him, so I tell him I'm sorry, but I can't do it without trying to hurt his feelings. His mom doesn't know how to handle him either, but she is demanding that I take him for visits to give her a break. By the way, I have other children come for visits. I'm not entirely sure what the question, the specific question is here, Seth, but when you hear this with your attorney's ear, does this give you any insight on how you might recommend father to proceed? It's not really a legal question, right? It's, hey, I'm going through this really tough time. We're divorced or we're never married. We have a child together. We're not living in the same household. And we have a special needs child who unfortunately can be violent. Scary times for everyone. Um, He doesn't see him very often due to alienation. I'm just going to make one comment on that. You have a mother who's saying, please take him. Now, her motive might be because I just need a freaking break. But that doesn't sound like alienation when she's asking you to take the child. I don't know what happened previously. Maybe there was alienation that makes it more difficult for your son to get there. I know kids on the spectrum really need really just detailed things to be in order, right? They need to have their routine. So a couple things to do here. You can certainly always hire. um, These are kind of extreme examples, but this is kind of an extreme fact scenario. You can hire an off-duty police officer to be there with you. Wow. So because we're worried about safety. Yeah. And so if you have someone there that has an authority figure and and maybe can do something about it if something happens, and then it's not a he said, she said, or he said, and your child said, right? And I would do a one-on-one for a short period of time in a public place. You don't want to necessarily have confinement, right? I would start slowly. I would make sure, like, what time of day is he at his best, can we do it then so you can get a break, but maybe I don't have a breakdown with him when he's with me. So this would take a lot of communication between the parents. It would take a lot of coordination. It would take a lot of pre-planning and to have also plans in place if things go wrong. Let's not figure out what we're going to do if he gets violent the moment he gets violent. Let's have a plan in place of what we're going to do if he gets violent extremely difficult situation but i would start with this on a one-on-one so if there is violence we're not getting other children involved and i would carve out some time in short i don't think it's a legal question i think there's some practicalities here that you really need to talk to and maybe he's in mental health counseling maybe talk to the mental health counselor get some professional help on how to set up the transition the time what to do if things go bad and how he transitions back Thank you, Seth, and thank you, Father, for reaching out to us and giving us an opportunity to weigh in on that question. Uh, we sure appreciate it, and we would love to hear from even more of you. Head over to HowToSplitAToaster.com and tap that little button that says Submit Your Question, and it'll come right to us, and Seth will answer it in an upcoming episode. And Pete, we got a list of questions that people have sent in, and we're going to get to them. So keep sending in them. Don't feel like we've lost you in the shuffle. Uh, we try to match them up with the show, and so sometimes they're uh, on not on the back burner, but we're really waiting for the right moment. So thanks for sending them in. And thank you for downloading and listening to the show, too. We sure appreciate your time and attention, and we appreciate you hanging out with Furkan Dandia today. On behalf of Furkan and Seth Nelson, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships.
How to Split a Toaster is part of the True Story FM podcast network, produced by Andy Nelson, music by T-Bless and the Professionals, and DB Studios. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.